Once in a while, we're overwhelmed by the generosity of those who share our heart for Bible teaching and sharing the good news. This is one of those times. Just recently, we received a pledge from a group of ministry friends committed to matching dollar for dollar your donations up to $75,000. I can't express enough appreciation for the potential impact of this pledge for the ministry. So could I ask you to thoughtfully consider offering a financial gift today? Your gift will then be matched by the $75,000 pledge that's been made. Now that's a great ministry investment. 50 becomes 100, 500 becomes 1,000, 1,000 becomes 2,000, you get the idea. Join us in making this match pledge of $75,000 become $150,000 in support of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Call us with your gift today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, I've Got Questions, with a message entitled, The Ways of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to John 3.16 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I've started a one-week series called, I've Got Questions, and to a large part, the nine questions that I'm answering in this series well, they're a fair representative sample of the kinds of questions that, that we get here at Back to the Bible Canada. But these nine questions are a representative of the kind of questions both Christians and non-Christians ask. And that's especially true about the two questions that I'm going to attempt to answer today. The first is, is the Bible the only holy book? Or do Christians acknowledge other holy books as well? And, and the second is the difficult doctrine of hell. What is hell? Do we still believe it? Does the Bible teach it? Who goes there? And how do we reconcile this belief with the claim that our God is the God of love? So both extensive questions, and in both, I can only begin to scratch the surface. But I'm going to say that with both of these questions, we will get an insight into the ways of God. First, that God speaks, that is, he communicates. And second, that God is therefore deeply involved in human affairs and that he holds human beings accountable for their lives. I mean, these two things, the speaking God and the righteous God are a part of the ways of God. So as to the speaking God, let's talk about the Bible. Most Bible-believing churches have a statement of faith which includes a statement of what they believe about the Bible. You know, for years I was a member of an organization called the Gospel Coalition and their statement about the Bible is extensive, and it's also fairly standard about what most evangelicals and Christians throughout history have believed about the Bible. So it simply said, we believe that God has inspired the words preserved in the scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, which are both the record and means of his saving work in the world. These writings alone constitute the verbally inspired Word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error in the original writings, complete in its revelation of His will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. Well, that's, that's really a mouthful. It states that when the Bible was originally given, it was in its original languages. 
and from the pen of the various authors, the authoritative Word of God, free from any mixture of human error. If you're paying really close attention, you'll have noticed that a part of that statement contained the phrase, these writings alone constitute the Word of God. Hope you heard that. These writings alone, that is, the 66 books, are the only documents that the human race has that constitute the Word of God. That's quite a statement. But before I attempt to give the reasons for it, let's start with another statement. I begin by saying that the Bible is a unique book. Now, I think that's not stating it well enough. In the history of the human race, there has never been a book like the Bible. Now, I know that all the other so-called holy books make the same claim, but, but consider the evidence. The Bible is unique in its composition. It was written by over 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years. I hope you caught that. Like one of those ancient churches or temples that we hear about that took hundreds of years to construct, this book took 1,500 years to construct. We know that the exodus of Israel out of Egypt happened in the year 1446 BC. We also know that about a year later, 1445 BC, Israel was at the foot of Mount Sinai, and there she received the Ten Commandments, which were written on stone tablets. So let's say the first words of our Bible were written in 1445 BC. See, we also know that the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, was penned by John while on exile in the Greek penal colony on the island of Patmos around AD 95. So that makes 1,539 years to complete the entire Bible. Look, there is no book in your library that took that long to write. Now, the Bible was written by some 40 authors. The Bible was written in three different languages, Hebrew, a few chapters in Aramaic, and then in Greek. The fact that it doesn't appear that way in the book that you purchase is because it has been translated from those original languages. Add to that that the writers of the Bible were almost all Jews, and then add also that some were kings, like David and Solomon. One, Moses, was the establisher of the nation. One, Joshua, was a military general. Many were prophets. Some were worship leaders, and some were scribes. And Amos, well, he was a farmer. And furthermore, the Bible was written in palaces and in prison. That is, it was written by people in power and by those who were thrown into prison by those who were in power. It was written on three continents. It was written by men of vastly different educational status, from very simple men to a man like Paul, who would have been one of the leading scholars in the world in his day. I'm still not done. The Bible represents a great variety of different literature. Some sections read like a detailed legal text. Other sections include statistical data. Some sections are historical narrative. Some sections are poetry. Some sections are letters. And some sections are what have been called apocalyptic literature, which means that it employs highly symbolic language and includes images of terrifying beasts and visions of disaster and hope. Now, that alone makes it unique, but, but add to that this one stunning feature. In spite of all of that variety, the Bible contains one storyline from front to back. It begins with the account of God creating, then moves to the fall of man and the promise that God will bring a Redeemer to restore that which was lost in the fall. 
From there, it moves to God creating a people through whom the Redeemer will come. And then the chosen people inherit the land, which will be the springboard to redeeming the world. And then, fascinatingly enough, the chosen people utterly fail. But still, in spite of their failure, the Redeemer does come and and offers redemption, freedom from the ravages of sin. By the end of the book, the promise is given that all the earth will be full of the glory of God when Jesus, the chosen Redeemer, returns a second time to the earth. Now, in between that storyline are amazing and unexpected twists in the plot line. And along the way, God's people are taught how to live wisely and how to avoid ruin. But here's the important point. Because the Bible covers such a long time span, it's amazing to see how many earlier promises are fulfilled later on. The Bible predicted the rise of world empires, which indeed came into being exactly as predicted. And the most obvious is that the Bible predicted the coming of the Redeemer. And as we look at the life of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, we see that each facet of his life from his birthplace onward is the fulfillment of earlier predictions. And that brings me back to the point, the uniqueness of the Bible. We have to think that if God were to write a book, that is, if it were actually from God, well, we'd have to expect that it would be different from every other book in the human race. If we were to go to the U.S. Library of Congress, which is the largest library in the world, I understand over 164 million items, that it should be obvious that if God wrote a book, that there would be no book in human history like this book called the Bible. And that's precisely what we have. Many of the other so-called holy books are the product of but one author or are a collection of writings over time, but don't tell one single story. This quite simply is the book of books, the writing that surpasses all other things. Now, of course, there's so much more that could be said. Of great interest is how the 66 books of the Bible came into a single volume. And that in itself is a story not of human arrangement, but of God's superintendence. Then we might look at how the Bible has been preserved over the years. We would find that we have more ancient manuscripts supporting the accuracy of the Bible than any other ancient book. Then we might look at the archaeological finds that verify the truthfulness of the Bible's message. We might examine and compare the various parts, finding it free of contradiction. We might also notice that in terms of today, The Bible is the most sold book in human history, that it has outsold its nearest competitor so that it has virtually no competitors. Even in the last 50 years, it has sold over 4 billion copies. The next competitor came in at 800 million. And then the Bible has been translated into more languages than any other book in human history. So that's all but scratching the surface. To argue that this book is unique, that there is no other book like it, well, that's objectively true. There is no book that compares to this one. There simply is no book like it. Should it therefore surprise us to hear it said that this is God's book, the only word of God that the human race possesses, well, of course it shouldn't surprise us. This is the book of books. There's a new challenge of reaching Canadian young adults for the gospel. 
A recent poll records that roughly 20% of young people in Canada are public about their faith, 30% are private in their beliefs, 30% are skeptical, and 20% are confident in their atheism. You know, it's encouraging to hear that roughly 80% aren't necessarily opposed to the supernatural. However, our culture is also deeming confusion as a virtue and clarity as a sin. So the very general climate of Canadian young adults today is that the majority are open to spirituality, but cautious of certainty. That's the challenge. And at InDoubt, a purely young adult ministry, we take it on by providing podcasts, articles, Bible studies, and live events that engage the tough topics of our day and impact this generation with the beautiful message and power of the gospel. Take a look for yourself at indoubt.ca. We're talking about the ways of God. God is the speaking God. He communicates through creation itself, which declares his glory, but he has specifically communicated by giving the human race a book. But now speaking of the ways of God, let's ask the second question for today. How can a God of love threaten the human race with hell? How can a God of love send people to hell? But then again, when you think about it, the second question is not really a question, is it? In the crude and crass parts of our society, people are regularly telling other people to go to hell, aren't they? And furthermore, when I hear of people committing horrible crimes or when you think of acts of terrorism or the crimes of ISIS, people talk about the perpetrators of these things deserving hell. Or to put the most easily identifiable example forward, don't you think Adolf Hitler should go to hell? A great many people, regardless of Christian conviction, think he should. After all, if there is no justice in the end, well, would it be loving to have a God who does not hold people accountable for their crimes or simply winks at the decimation of the lives of others? Imagine a country where murderers and rapists and people who steal and people who swindle the elderly out of their life savings are not prosecuted. Would we call that a loving country? Well, of course not. It's not love that allows the guilty to go free. It's the lack of love that allows the guilty to go free. How about the critic might want to take me on on that issue? That's not the problem, you might say. You know, the real problem about hell is that you Christians believe that if anyone doesn't believe in your religion, they're going to hell. But I respond, that's not what informed Christians say at all. Listen to Isaiah 59, 1-2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Or listen to Ezekiel 18, verse 20, the soul that sins shall die. Or Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Or listen to the details in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, for that matter, listen to the words of the book of Revelation, words that, that describe the final judgment in which God decides heaven or hell for every single human being. Revelation 20, verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, 
and they were judged, each one of them, listen, according to what they had done. Listen, I could go on and on, but this point needs to be made. People don't go to hell for not believing in Jesus. They go to hell because they've sinned against God or they've rebelled against infinite holiness and justice and righteousness. Sin is a crime against God. So again, to be clear, Jesus is the solution to the sin problem. Let me explain it this way. If you have cancer, you don't die because you refuse the cure. You die because you have cancer. The cure is salvation from what's killing you. Jesus is the cure to the sin problem. People go to hell because of their sin. Jesus, the Savior, saves from the yawning abyss that would seek to devour us forever. I don't know how often this has to be repeated because, quite frankly, a great many Christians don't even get this. We eternally die because of sin. No, not because we have the wrong religion. The question of religion should be asked in this fashion. Does the religion you have save you from the rightful condemnation of your sin? Okay, let's say we understand that. The question of hell is a question of whether we've committed the kind of sin that would condemn us to hell. And if we have, we're in a lot of trouble. And if we have, we need a savior lest we be eternally damned. Well, then it's not a question of whether a God of love would send someone to hell, is it? The real question is, what kinds of sin are severe enough to send someone to hell? And to this, there's a great deal of disagreement. On a popular level, people tend to answer based on feelings. They tend to ask the question on the basis of whether they feel that they are essentially a good or a bad person. But a little reflection will tell you how utterly unsatisfying that answer is. The question is never, do I feel guilty? I might or I might not due to any number of factors. The real question is, am I guilty? Hence, my guilt is an objective question, not a question that examines my feelings. You know, a murderer might feel guilty, but he might not. He might feel justified in his actions, or he might not. The real question, however, is if he is guilty, not in how he evaluates his own actions. So then, what is sin, and why is it that sin should demand the ultimate penalty? And in order to answer that question, well, let me turn to Jonathan Edwards. If you don't know who Jonathan Edwards was, let me introduce him to you. Jonathan Edwards lived from 1703 to 1758. He was a pastor, he was a philosopher, and he was a theologian. He became the president of Princeton University. He was also a key player and a key preacher in the First Great Awakening, the largest revival in the history of North America. He's one of the greatest preachers in North American history, as well as, I think, one of the greatest theologians in all of Christian history. He's very much a man worth reading. Let me quote him on the subject of hell. He said, if the obligation to love, honor, and obey God be infinite, then sin, which is a violation of infinite obligation, and so an infinite evil. Infinite evil deserves infinite punishment, Therefore, such a punishment is just. There's no evading the force of this reasoning, but by denying that God, the sovereign of the universe, is infinitely glorious." End quote. Now, you probably get how often Edwards used the word infinite in that short paragraph. Each human being created by an infinitely glorious God has an infinite obligation, that is, to love and obey the infinite God. 
God, who is infinitely just or infinitely righteous, has declared what is right and what is wrong. When we fail in that which is infinite, we are deserving of infinite punishment. Now, if you've missed all of that infinite stuff, let me simplify it. Imagine you break the law. Let's make it a minor matter. Let's say you are caught speeding, just a bit over the speed limit. Should you go to jail for that? Well, of course not. It's hardly an infinite crime. It's a, it's a minor matter. Now, what should happen if you willfully kill your neighbor's son for, let's say, for playing the music too loud as he drives by in his car? That's a major crime, and it should warrant a large penalty as large as the nation can offer. Is it an infinite crime? Well, I'll leave that to you to decide. Now, let's up the ante. Let's say you planned for and brought into being an ethnic cleansing killing millions of people because they're either Jewish or Armenian or Bosnian. The examples are actually many. And that's worse than killing the neighbor's son. That's killing everyone's son and and daughter and brother and sister. Now, is that an infinite crime? Well, I guess it depends on what you consider to be the worth of a human being. And here, I invite you to think about what Dr. Edwards said. What if love and obedience to God is an infinite obligation? What if it's really true that God is the only being who has infinite worth? Do you see our problem? Most people have never considered just how great God is. That's why they find hell abhorrent. They would willingly send someone to hell if they raped a child, but would not send someone there if they committed a crime against God. And listen, it's not to denigrate the life of a child, but it is quite something if the God who exists is actually infinite. Jonathan Edwards is right. If the God who exists is the God described in the Bible, what then do we make of our sins? David thought that in Psalm 51, he says of this sin of adultery, he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. In his mind, that made the sin not better, but worse. That's why the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that the one against whom we sinned still loved us enough that he would send his only son into the world, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. See, that's the amazing thing about God. He both communicates, he has communicated in the Bible, but in his communication, he makes an offer of love to a condemned world. Come to me, he says, and be saved. Even though you've sinned against me, he says, I will out of my own goodness and mercy offer to you my son so that you might be saved. What an offer. What an amazing thing we learn when we ask questions about the ways of God. John, thanks for your messages today uh, on on the Bible and on hell. Two two important issues. Uh, You know, you also did a series on hell, which people can get, but why was it so important to do that? Well, I did a series on heaven, and I thought it was important to do its, you know, its opposite, uh, the doctrine of hell. But I think it's also important because people don't understand how hell is related to our salvation. And uh, they don't understand uh, that hell is related to the nature of God. We can't understand his love without understanding that. So there's a lot of issues. And because hell is also being denied in our world today. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us here again tomorrow as we continue our series, I've Got Questions, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible.